Welcome to Manifolds. I'm super excited today to have Richard Hanania and Rob Henderson as my guests. They've both been individually on this podcast before. It's great to have them both uh, here at the same time. I'm also going to apologize to them because I was supposed to be in, I think it was in Dallas for a UT, UATX, University of Austin. I guess it was a panel as part of their Summer Forbidden Courses program, and the three of us were supposed to be together. I was on a revenge travel family trip in Italy and Greece, and so I, I thought I could get, get back in time for the panel, but it turns out the flights and ferries were not working out. And by the way, the revenge, uh, just uh, I don't want to disclose too much, but the revenge is the, on the part of my wife, who just demanded that we have a family trip this summer. So I, I you know, I didn't have any choice, <laughs> even though I admitted many months in advance to be there with Richard and Rob. But the way it worked out, I had to cancel it to kind of the last minute. So I apologize to you guys. And um, I kind of, if you don't mind, would like to just start a little bit with like, what would we have said? Uh, to the students, um, at that panel, if we had all been there, cause we, we could talk about that. And then maybe for my listeners who don't know that much about UATX, I'll just introduce what that university is. Uh, the way I would describe it is it's a new private university, which is going to be located in Austin, Texas. Got some big kind of billionaire backers. It's already raised a fair amount of money and they want to have a very strong commitment to truth and freedom of expression. Um, so it's kind of an, in a way, like, I don't want to abuse the term, but it's a little bit of an anti-woke new university that they're trying to create. And so they've started out by running these forbidden courses in the summer, which allows students to discuss things which are absolutely not allowed to be discussed <laughs> at all the other universities, uh, in the United States today. So, uh, so Richard, what, what would we have discussed if we'd been on the panel? Uh, so, you know, we had a discussion. It was basically Rob. Um, Rob interviewed me um, about my <coughs> forthcoming book, Origins of Woke. Rob has a book coming out too, but that's that's in February while mine is uh, relatively closer, coming out in uh, mid-September. Um, and yeah, so we basically went over uh, wokeness as law, where it comes from. I think that I, my book and my work in general has a um, unique perspective to bring on these issues. I think a lot of people are thinking it are very surface or high level um they're thinking about it in terms of uh you know the culture and sort of ideas and this you know this this place of like you know what why do people believe these crazy things that other people are disagreeing with and trying to push back on and you know my my main argument is that there's a lot of you know laws and government regulations that are pretty in the weeds and you know pretty technical and you know are not you know exactly obvious to uh just a casual observer that are driving a lot of this. So basically, you know, Rob, Rob read my book. Um, we, we talked about it. Um, we, we, uh, unfortunately didn't get a lot of chance. We didn't get any chance actually to take questions. There was just time, time constraints. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, I did attend one other, uh, panel where I heard a lot of the kids, um, talk about, uh, you know, like, why can't we have class-based affirmative action? And that sort of stuck in my mind and annoyed me a little bit. So I have an essay that I've just published today. Uh, we're doing this on July 5th. That was about actually class-based, class-based, uh, preferences would actually be worse. So there was, you know, something like intellectually that, that uh, that, that came out of, uh, came out of my trip down there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I read, uh, I read Richard's book, um, uh, like a, I don't know, a few weeks before, so we, we, yeah, we talked a lot about his book. Yeah, I asked him just a, a few questions and we explored, uh, you know, various sort of aspects of, of, uh, you know, his argument. 
And I, I remember after. So so we didn't get to take questions, unfortunately, but I stuck around after. I know, Richard, you had to leave later uh, later that evening or the next day, but I, I continued to teach uh, for the remainder of the week. So some students did ask me some questions and, uh, you know, they, they some of them. So it's interesting, like, so, you know, you mentioned the, the students at the other panel who, um, you know, they, they tended to have sort of relatively progressive views, you know, uh, some of them anyway, on like class based affirmative action. I don't think anyone challenged or, or, or rather supported like race based affirmative action or maybe a couple of them did, but they really like this idea of class based affirmative action. But then I also heard some other students later after you and I spoke, um, you know, I asked you that question about vaccines and they were you know like they, so we had we had a handful of students who were you know uncertain about covid vaccines and they liked everything you said except the thing about the vaccines <laughs> they're like on board with like 95 percent of, of the hanania's body of work but your your stance on vaccines seemed you know, to offend some of them this is me I, I thought it was just idiots on twitter <laughs> but i've really got to do an anti-anti-vax uh <laughs> I've never bothered with it, but it, it's really, really necessary. Dorian Abbott, even he didn't like challenge you, but he there are smart, like, young, twenty-year-old kids who were like, some girl, you're vaccinated. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's amazing what what the tribalism has done to people. But yeah, you know, I believe that there are uh, smart young people who who are vaccine skeptics, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of that. So, for, yeah. for my listeners, Richard, can you just give? I don't know if you're officially on your book tour yet, but you probably have like a two minute press of your book that you could give, right? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, you can order it from uh, Amazon uh, right now. It's uh, available for uh, uh, pre-order. Um, and it's uh, out in uh, September, you know, right? It's uh, yeah, it's coming out in September. And Rob tells me that, you know, pre-orders are very, uh, very important. So people want to pre-order now. We don't we don't have uh, we don't have a cover yet, but the cover is going to be out. I think probably maybe by the time people listen to this and we've got some really cool blurbs and we got a cool cover design that I, that I like. Um, but yeah, so people can order got it. Got a Peter Thiel quote. Uh, yeah, we got that. Um, and so if people are, uh, and Rob Henderson too. So if people are, right. um, you know, if you're, if you're going to order it eventually, you know, just buy it now because the, the pre-sales all go, go in the bank and it helps promotion and, uh, other efforts. Um, and so, you know, the idea is I just, you know, I've been watching the, uh, the, uh, wars over wokeness, even before it was called wokeness. I mean, going back to, you know, uh, when I was in law school about a decade, a decade ago. And, you know, like these things that people think are sort of new that just maybe popped up in the last, you know, five or 10 years with the great awakening or, you know, really took off under George Floyd. A lot of the, the, the fundamental assumptions of this stuff has been law in the United States since the uh, late 1960s or early uh, 1970s. And what, what I think we're seeing with wokeness, um, the book is, you know, ambitiously called The Origins of Woke because I'm trying to explain, like, this is, I'm trying to make a strong social science case of where this comes from. They, you know, it, there was all these policies that basically, you know, enshrined this and made institutions behave on the basis of certain beliefs. Uh, so in, uh, you know, 1965, there was an executive order 11246, for example, that said all government contractors, and that's a huge portion of the, uh, of the workforce. Um, all the government contractors have to have an affirmative action program. They all have to uh, go, cal- you know, calculate the race and sex of all their different employees in different areas, and then look for goals and timetables uh, if they have any, um, uh, if there are any, uh, is there anything called underutilization? There was 65 uh, executive order, but it, it really, the, the president regime didn't come until uh, 1971. Uh, that same year, you had uh, the Duke versus uh, Greer's uh, power company case, uh, disparate impact. A lot of uh, Steve's listeners are going to be familiar with this. They basically said you don't have to have intention of discrimination. Uh, you don't have to, um, 
you know, there, you, there doesn't have to be, it's not like just treating people differently on account of race. It's the fact that you give a test and some people and white people do better than black people. Therefore, you know, the burden of proof goes on you, the employer, to show that you're not doing something wrong. And that didn't apply just to tests. That applied to literally everything the government wanted to go after you for, like, you know, criminal background checks and things where anything that has a racial disparity. Um, and so these are just like two examples. I mean, you have harassment law. Um, the, the sexual harassment stuff really took off in the 1980s. Uh, you have racial harassment stuff. Uh, you know, you, there are big, big penalties for employers if they have a racially or, you know, insensitive environment or an environment where women arguably can feel, um, where women can arguably feel uncomfortable. Uh, and so, of course, what happened was, you know, employers and, you know, the private sector and institutions, uh, they took precautions. They brought in human resources professionals who told them what's not going to get them into trouble, what's, what's, you know, not going to cost them money, how to keep the government off their back, how to stay in good uh, standing with their contractors. And this sort of, this monster, um, you know, from within institutions, um, the, you know, this is, this is the, you know, the, you can see, you know, this stuff that used to be called just straight up affirmative action compliance. Uh, um, you know, this is the, the, these are the precursors to the uh, DEI, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, these people, they, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, they talk about the ideas behind this stuff. They were there, but they were given the open opening through civil rights law. And the hopeful uh, part of this book, it's not only a book of social science, it's a book um, that hopes to be a guide uh, to people who want to do something about this. It could be an, undone in the same ways uh, uh, through, you know, through government action. So SFFA, uh, the Harvard is just one example. This is the one, one Supreme Court case or one executive order or one government decision isn't going to change things. It's just the sort of the opening shot of what I hope will be a larger program to roll this stuff back. So I, I just want to um, kind of square your account with what I personally experienced. And of course, I'm just an N of one. But it did seem to me like, uh, you know, a lot of these things were controversial. So, so you know, might have been law, but one could still in the academy have sort of two respectable professors debating the merits of, you know, a particular piece of legislation or Griggs versus Duke Powers. And, and you were allowed to have, you could be on the other side of it and the students wouldn't immediately call you a Nazi or a racist or something, right? So, so, and then suddenly it seemed like, no, you couldn't be on the other side of that. And if you were on the other side of that, you couldn't even, you could at that point not be allowed to speak on campus because you were dangerous or evil. And that seemed like a su relatively kind of Southern, sudden change in the mindset of the students and and maybe when rob was on my show we even talked about the fact that i think he was at yale when um the halloween massacre thing okay. happened at silliman college so I, this is that like do you have a view on that richard like you're saying maybe all these processes were kind of moving along in the background but but was there a sudden social change at all in the way that these ideas were regarded yeah, I think obviously there was. I mean, you look at uh, Zach's, uh, Zach Goldberg's uh, work on the Great Awakening about what happened in the prestige press. Clearly, something happened in the, uh, you know, starting around 2011 or 2012. And clearly, 2020 was um, crazy. Um, I, you know, the way I look at it sort of is the culture finally caught up to the law. Um, and so basically, the law said, look, everything you do is racist. Um, that went against a lot of, you know, American traditions and ideas and the constitution and basically, you know, the way a lot of people, you know, understood the world just because it's ridiculous. And then, you know, eventually in the 2010s, you got people who started to take that, uh, really, really, uh, seriously. Uh, 
My friend uh, Gabriel Rossman is a professor at a uh, sociology at UCLA called civil rights law a, a force multiplier. So like in the you know it's like something like in the military. It's like if you you know if you're an a, an activist, if you're some kind of you know um, a, a malcontent who's working for a company or something. I mean, you grab onto your race or your identity, and you can really make corporations or you could really make institutions uh, suffer just because you have you know the, you have the laws uh, on your side. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is such a, this is such a, it's like studying, I compare in the book, studying the rise of Christianity, right? It's like you can write volumes of books looking at the problem from a different perspective. You can look at, you know, the laws of the Roman Empire and you can look at culture and you can look at media and you can look at a hundred different things. Um, but you know, I, I, I still make an argument for, although it's, you know, these things are good, you know, these, uh, the degree of wokeness is going to, um, ebb and flow over time. And of course it always, ha- it always has, uh, you know, I still try to make the argument that there is a causal case that it was actually the reforms of the 1960s and 1970s, uh, that did this. And, and clearly, you know, there, there's still a lot to talk about with the great awakening and the summer of Floyd and all that other stuff. Would it, would it be fair to say that? You know, there's one strain of civil rights law, if you go all the way back to the 60s, what was really about race blindness. So the idea that, okay, we in the South, they were mistreating African-Americans. And we, the first move was to make things race blind so they couldn't mistreat one group. But the other strain goes way beyond that to disparate impact, which says, well, if, if any group is not doing well, it must be the fault of racists that they're not doing well. They couldn't possibly have any personal agency or, you know, there couldn't be some sociological cause for it. It's, it's really got to be active discrimination causing them to not do as well as the other group. And therefore we have to actively fix it. Like I, like being an old kind of liberal, I was okay with the race blind part of the civil rights movement. I was actually very for that. But this other part seems crazy. It seems like kind of sloppy social science and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, well, there was, uh, you know, they were for the, these two, like, you know, the race life stuff and the equal rep- the equity, what we would call today the equal representation uh, sort of ideas, they were really intertwined uh, from the start. So before the Civil Rights Act was passed, I mean, people, people who were against the Civil Rights Act worried about this. Um, there was a case in Illinois where the state, uh, where the state government went after Motorola because they, you know, they gave it, this black guy went to like their, whatever their equivalent of the EEOC was. Uh, at the uh, state level in Illinois and said, you know, this test is racist because I'm a black man and blacks, you know, don't do as well as on this test. And this was written up in the New York Times. This was during the civil rights debate. And Congress noticed this. And then everyone in Congress agreed, okay, we can't let that happen. So actually they, 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 they did actually say, well, you know, we're going to put some stuff in the civil rights act. Uh, there's something called the Tower Amendment, which explicitly, uh, allows tests. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. Um, professional, so call what they call professionally developed tests. Um, and so. People, you know, people understood that this was a danger, uh, but at the same time, you know, the people who uh, who wrote the Civil Rights Act and voted on it did not think we would get, um, you know, we would get something like the disparate impact regime. Now, it wasn't; it didn't take a lot of time. I mean, the the people who warned about what was happening were correct. The Duke uh, uh, Griggs Power Company case was only in 1971, uh, so you have you know seven years. Uh, the people who went, who became, you know, activists who went into the government, who, uh, went into the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, that's the, you know, they enforced civil rights law within the government. They were activists. They were the kind of people who just wanted equal results for black people and, you know, thought they were overcoming the long history of, uh, racism. And, you know, that from the start, I mean, it's not like they came in in 1964, 1965 were completely naive. Like, no, the idea of disparate impact was already in the air. So there's a different levels. Yes, Congress, I mean, the way they, 
uh, the uh, people who, uh, you know, the people most representative to the, uh, you know, the most representative of the public that, you know, the people's representatives who went and actually voted on the bill thought they were doing the colorblindness thing. Uh, the civil rights movement in general, um, no, they, you know, the seeds of all the stuff we see today was already there. Yeah. So, you know, Richard, I don't know. When, when you and I talked, I mean, so, so one thing that you do in your book is you say that, uh, like you, that the people overrate ideas and that this is really civil rights law. But then I'm thinking today, if these laws were to all be overturned, I think the ideas would still be pervasive and the, the activists would still uh, be very much in support of it. Like it, it wouldn't go away, right? Like sure. the, the no, agitators no, and the malcontents it, it and they would still be pushing for it, right? Yeah. Like I, I, in the conclusion of my book, it, you know, it says basically you are hopefully rolling back civil rights law today. So, you know, it took 60 years to get, you know, from this uh, regime to like the crazy culture that we have today. You're fighting for a generation or you're fighting for a generation or two down the line. Uh, they're still right. going to be there. I hope that like, I hope that we, you know, we uh, roll back a lot of the civil rights laws. Then the next time there's a corporate, you know, there's a, uh, you know, the, there's a recession or something. Corporations downsize, they realize, hey, maybe these DEI people and maybe these human resources, maybe we don't need them as much as. Uh, as much as we did, you know, the trial lawyers, they go find some other cash mm. cow and they stop focusing on civil rights law because the civil rights cases become harder to win. It's not going to be like a, like a, a, you know, a V day where everyone says, okay, we've defeated wokeness today. It's going to be in, right. a, you know, a sort of quiet changing of incentives, uh, that has, you know, effects on the culture decades down the line, which is, which is like how civil rights law led to wokeness in the first place. That's how we'll get to a, uh, a non woke culture from changing the law. Hmm. Huh. So we, we could differentiate between, you know, the battle lines as, you know, uh, they affect society in general versus the atmosphere on canvas. And I don't really see the atmosphere on canvas being fixed anytime soon. So in other words, people expressing, you know, your beliefs or my beliefs are going to be in big trouble on university campuses for a long, at least significant amount of time to come, even if in society they act Actually, the Supreme Court says, hey, no more affirmative action, right? Do, do you agree with that? Or? Yeah, no, the campuses are the hardest thing. And I think, but I think that we, you know, I'll, I'll say for, I think we overrate the campuses relative to everything else in society. So when like we really, when you say, oh, we could debate affirmative action um, in campuses, you know, until five or 10 years ago, you know, you really, you know, I had a professor once tell me, you know, you think universities are bad. You should see the HR offices at major corporations. And so like, you know, the, it was sort of like the Great Awakening went through corporate America and, you know, they became, you know, crazier in the last five or 10 years, you know, now they're, you know, they're giving statements on, on this and that, but they are, you know, the zero tolerance policies that came out of corporate America that people used to mock before people focused on universities were always there. Now intellectuals, people like us didn't focus on it as much because people like us spend a lot of time at universities, right? And so intellectuals care about universities a lot. Um, and, but so all this other stuff, I think is like, has always been there in business. And I think that one thing civil rights will do, look, the, 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 the you know, corporate America is going to be the easiest, uh, to change because they respond, they respond to incentive. They care about the profit motive. They're not just filled with these activists who just want to, who are in their job because they want to change the world. They have some of those, uh, but still the profit, the profit motive, uh, disciplines them, right? And the selection, uh, pr- the selection effects of people bringing them in is different from the universities. And you're, and so, you're right. The universities are, you know, the most ideologically committed to liberalism. Even in that case, though, I mean, it's pretty amazing to think how we got here. I mean, I tell this, I told the story at UATX and I tell it in my book. Uh, it was the federal government that went to Columbia University, uh, and said, we want data on your race and ge- race and gender. 
of the people you're hiring uh, because you want to see if you're violating civil rights law. And the, the Columbia University fought this tooth and nail. The president of Columbia wrote a letter saying, we're not even that kind of university. We don't even collect that data. We don't want to be that kind of university. And then he says at the end of his, like, his open letter, you know, this is that we need federal funding. And if this is what we have to do, this is what we'll have to do. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's 19, that's, that's the early 1970s. We're in 2020. The universities are a completely different thing. Uh, but there's a history here and you're, you're right. They're going to, they're going to, they're, they're crazy now. I, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt it. They're going to be crazy for a while. And, you know, that's just, that's just life. It's something we're going to have to deal with. But by the way, again, drawing from just my personal experience, but, you know, being older than you guys, I would say, you know, having had a long career, side career in business, at least in technology startups and, you know, interacting with a fair number of, you know, Fortune 500 type people as well. Um, if you go back long enough, like maybe just 20 years ago, and you talk to the CEO of a major company, like a C-level person at a, at a, at a big company, they would say things like, well, we have to do this stuff for compliance reasons. It insulates us against lawsuits, but I think it's crazy. So, so, you know, I would have a lot of 20 years ago, I'd have a lot of conversations with senior uh, management like that. Today, it's much more common to meet a CEO who actually believe is like a true believer yeah. in this. Like maybe even like the BlackRock CEO is like a true believer in this stuff. They're not just signaling it. They actually believe it. And then if you're in, like I'm often meeting them in some kind of quasi-intellectual setting, like it's some oligarch meeting where they've invited me as one of the token intellectuals or something. Because it's in a kind of intellectual setting, I can then start questioning like, well, why do you believe X? And, and, you know, realize that they don't really, obviously they have, they don't have, they're not familiar with all the social science or psychometrics or, or anything, but they do actually sincerely believe now. So now we have a, a larger and larger percentage of the top leadership in private companies who don't just, aren't just doing it because they have to, but they're doing it because they really believe in it. So I think that was a major change in the last 20 years. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that's true. I, you know, I, I don't doubt that's true. It's, you know, the, the question is, you know, it, it, they seem to, they seem to blow with the wind. And I think that, you know, the market pressure is going to select, you know, for people, the crazier things they believe, you know, and if people are allowed to have, you know, diverse opinions in, uh, corporations, they're going to select for certain kinds of people. So I, I, you know, I'm not surprised that sort of businesses, you know, ape the language of, of power. I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. I think most people, you know, I should understand that most people are not intellectuals. They're just absorbing, uh, you know, what they hear, what they read in the New York Times or what they hear on TV. Um, and so, yeah, there's, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I think that like, if you're going to, uh, you know, you make a list of like the hardest and, you know, least, uh, the hardest and easiest people to disabuse of wokeness, I think probably <laughs> executives are easiest and, you know, women's studies professors are, are the hardest. <laughs> that's not, yeah, that's right. That we're facing. That's 20 years fair. ago, people weren't getting fired either, right? I mean, cancel culture, I mean, I, you know, I guess it existed to some degree, but doesn't at least, you know, what my, my, you know, oh, sort no, of vague the, recollection, but then also from what I read from the early 2000s, it didn't exist quite on this level. In the, in, of, well, in the 1990s, there was case after case of like, you know, uh, uh, corporations getting, you know, smacked down with like huge hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, losing in lawsuits or fines or whatever. Uh, one after the other. And then, you know, they would like things like Coca-Cola, where they would say, change your entire hiring practices, you know, have this committee that looks yeah. at diversity. The federal government was doing this on uh, the 1990s. I think the early 2000s, just uh, sort of the war on terror, just sort of uh, 9-11 distracted people for a few years. But this has been going on for a very long time. 
Yeah, but in terms of like, that's not enough, I think, to turn someone into a true believer, right? Like changing the policies around the way that your corporation is run versus you personally, your reputation and your job and your livelihood and you your know, reputation this is, this is, this is at this stake. Is Trevor, you know, this is Trevor's, Robert Trevor's theory of self-deception, right? People believe what's adapted. Yeah. If the legal <laughs> environment tells you this is the right thing to believe, people will become true believers. But but do you think like 25 years ago, I think it was it was enough, right, to say, well, you know, the, the, the regulations, the policies are changing and that's what it says. And so that's good enough for me so you just do it whereas i think now it's not enough to say like if you were to just publicly say oh like the, this is what we're supposed to do civil rights law and all like that's that's the reason why i do it i think that would upset a lot of people <laughs> i, I well, think like 20 years ago that would have been like oh he's just doing what he has to do but today it's like that, yeah but people weren't saying yeah. that 20 years ago people were you know had to feel like they had to you know say this was all good stuff to do 25 years ago too so do you uh, think so you think like you had to be sort of an openly true believer that, that you know decades I, ago well, I think decades ago, at least in a private, you know, casual conversation, they could they could reveal to me yeah. that we don't really believe in this stuff, but we have to do it because we don't want to get sued. Whereas now in a the same kind of conversation, they're revealing that they, quote, truly believe it. And hmm. I think it's this trivialization that you were talking about, Richard. Like if, if you reached adulthood well before this was the norm, then you could still hold on to your earlier beliefs and just comply because your full power is forcing you to comply. But the people who grew up with it sort of trivialized themselves because they, they realized like, oh, I better believe this because this is what all good people believe. And then eventually yeah. they just well, yeah. sincerely trivialize. I like that term. Yeah. Like a Black Panther supporter, by the way, which is just sort of a funny irony of all this. Well, the funny thing is that, and this, like this guy, Richard Sander, the UCLA law professor who coined the term mismatch, a lot of these guys were social activists in the 60s and 70s. And because it's correlated with being an acute observer of society. So you were an acute observer of society in the 60s and 70s. You thought, hey, there's something wrong. We got to help African-Americans or whatever. But then like now that they're 60 years old, they're looking like, wait, now I'm still an acute observer of society and things have gone crazy and we might even be hurting. In the case of Sander, he would say we're even hurting these black students. But although, although I think, I think, yeah, that might be Sander, but I think Trevor's is actually still a, still a leftist. I, I, I don't think. Oh yeah, yeah. I meant, I meant Sander, but, but it's, I'm not surprised to okay. find people who are considered far right now by the wokest. But if you actually look at their history in the sixties and the seventies, they had very high social consciousness and, you know, were, were, you know, very progressive, et cetera. For, for the time, they were very progressive. Yeah, I don't think many educated people were not, you know, uh, sort of in favor of civil rights in the 1960s or 1970s. That was just sort of, you know, you thought Among intellectuals, yeah, there were very few that weren't for it. Yeah. One thing that shocked me recently, because I've, I've seen this too, like, you know, I, I read like old articles, you know, in the archives of the Atlantic or something, and it was still acceptable in polite society to take the other side on affirmative action or to openly question it. I mean, now I, I, you see a little bit of it now, but it's mostly framed from the perspective of um, uh, quotas against Asian Americans. You know, the, the, the guy, uh, Jay Caspian Kang of The New Yorker, he's written some interesting pieces recently about it. But like for the most part, the, the right thing to think about affirmative action is that it's good. It's an unmitigated good. There are no there are no downsides, whereas it didn't seem to be true 10 or 15 years ago. And I wonder, like, is this because like, I've seen like and, and I think, Richard, you're, you're aware you, you two see probably about the like um, like the gap in terms of like public opinion on on affirmative action and quotas based around race uh, versus like people who are highly educated with graduate degrees, uh, people who work in academia. I mean, the, the magnitude of that gap seems like maybe larger than almost any other like topical sociopolitical issue. I mean, you know, maybe abortion would be another one. But that, I, to me, it was I was just shocked at how much of like 
affirmative action seems to be so important to intellectuals and to elites relative to the public at large. It's just there's such a large distance between the two. I think your typical New York Times editor, I mean, might just not, I mean, have, you know, just not know the degree of like the preferences. So I think when they see someone attacking affirmative action, they're like, why are you being so mean, right? It's just a little nudge on the scale to help a black person who might've had a difficult life. I, you know, I think that the whole system is so like, you know, they obscure what they're doing and you can see it reading the uh, opinions in SFFA, but, but then you look at the data and like how different it is from the way Harvard and UNC talk about this stuff. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just, just that the whole system, you know, it, it benefits from uh, obfuscation. So you've seen probably polls recently that if you ask about affirmative, and this is like how, you know, we, we too are also sort of out of touch. We know what affirmative action is, but if you actually ask, you know, a poll, like you see this headline, most Asians support affirmative action. If you just say you support affirmative, it well, sounds good. It's affirmative. It's action. I mean, whatever well, is assertiveness and doing something that sounds good. Right. We, we all know what that means. Uh, if you ask, should you know, uh, institutions race be taken or, into account. Right? Yeah. Yes. You get, you know, 70, 80%, you know, disapproval, uh, or whatever. So yeah, I mean, even to like determine what political opinion is and what elite opinion is when there's just like so many lies, uh, in the system is actually quite difficult. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because like so many other issues, it's almost 50, 50, like pro-life or pro-choice or whatever, like, like gun rights, like, you know, 50% of the country likes guns, 50% of them don't like guns. But then with, with affirmative action or race conscious policies, it's like 70, 80% of the country doesn't like it. And it's like the, the exact reverse or even more so, uh, among intellectuals and elites. Well, the, it's the just like, it's not 50, yeah. 50. It's like over. Oh, yeah. yeah maybe, maybe the, it, it, I actually don't, I don't know the like public polling on transgender issue, but maybe that's, it depends on what that might be another, but like, you know, I, I saw a really remarkable poll, like, can your gender be changed? And like 60% of Americans say no, no, that's not like, that's not, you know, that. That opinion is rarely appearing in the New York Times or Washington Post today. It was some remarkable, like 40 or 50 percent said it was immoral to ever change your gender. I mean, that is not a view that is uh, uh, represented in an institution. So, yeah, that probably is probably the most extreme uh, disparity now. But, yeah, affirmative action is up there, too. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. I mean, like, yeah, I, the affirmative action just gets. Yeah. I, I'm just uh, agreeing with you, Rob. Like, if you look at the details mm -hmm. of what was it, Prop 16 in California that tried to repeal oh. 209. The average people were not having it. Even average people of, of color were not having it, right? It's only elites. Mm -hmm. it, it was just astonishing, like the, 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 the UC system and the, the democratic state apparatus, they were all telling people, this is how you have to vote on 16. But then the average yeah. African American or Hispanic Californian wasn't having it. So there is, this, <laughs> there is this huge, common people versus elites divergence on many of these issues, particularly affirmative action. What accounts for that? I just don't like personally, it's hard for me to like totally wrap my head around why this in particular, the other issues, I guess, because I've been around so many people and it, you know, it's just, I, I, I sort of understand the other issues. At least I can sort of model the theory of mind of like why whatever anti-gun or pro-choice like those. Okay, fine. But the affirmative action one, just how desperately people believe in this um this one is a little and, and and the sort of the dishonesty and duplicity around like yes like you know asian americans do um suffer from the what unfair admissions practices and the unwillingness to just sort of be honest about this is is really interesting to me i i think you know this meme that they they have the fell curve distribution they have like the simple person's take and then they have the midwit take <laughs> they have the the high q take which comes back around to the the simple person's it's it's an example of that, but a little bit. But with the elites, they they've basically been taught, and and you know, like our system invests a lot of resources in this because 
when you're taking your, you guys know this better than me, but when you're taking your humanities, social science course requirements in college, they make sure to spend a lot of hours telling you, well, there really are no, first of all, race doesn't exist at all. And then um, there can't be any differences in performance between people. If there, if there are differences, they're, they're kind of small. And so for you to not want to have adequate Black representation on campus makes you very mean-spirited, right? And, and I think I think only a very kind of free-thinking or careful person who reads the wrong things during college escapes being brainwashed, really, by that um, set of teachings, which were put in place very deliberately. So when I first started as a professor at the University of Oregon, there was no ethnic studies requirement. And I was socially good friends with many professors in the sociology department. There, were, there was this joke that the University of Oregon was like um, like the 11th UC campus. It's like UC Eugene, because so many of the professors were like Berkeley grad, Berkeley PhDs. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was good friends with these Berkeley grads uh, who had, you know, um, become professors of sociology at Oregon. And at the time, this was the 90s, they were fighting to institute an ethnic studies requirement. So that meant if you wanted to, in order to graduate, whether your major was computer science or physics or whatever, you had to take an ethnic studies course taught by one of my buddies. And when they got in there, they were number one, they're going to, we're going to spend two weeks telling you why race is a social construct. Now we're going to spend two weeks telling you why, you know, the definition of black is different in Brazil than in the South. And, you know, all these standard teachings, which you're, you know, educated, educated people are supposed to know in our culture, there's a channel by which that is, you know, beamed into their heads and they can't graduate from the University of Oregon post 1995 or whenever they got the requirement in, you know, in place or 98 or whatever. You just could not escape the university without dealing with that. I don't want to call it propaganda because some of it is, 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 is fine. It's the teaching of like race relations and history of race relations in the United States, but certain aspects of the viewpoint, which are maybe not even empirically correct, are forced down the throats of every student at every one of these universities. So how can they escape? Like if you're just a normal person who's a little bit conformist and you just kind of like assume most of what the professor tells you is correct. It's very hard to come out unless you're like particularly disagreeable or intellectual or rigorous. You're going to come out thinking like, yeah, that's the way it is. Right. But the, the, the bulk of the population that didn't graduate from, you know, a flagship university or whatever, they, they don't have all that stuff. They didn't they didn't get all that propaganda. Maybe now they're getting that propaganda in like eighth grade. They weren't in the past. Maybe they are now. But but so that that's my sort of causal I mean, reconstruction. Maybe I, I missed that sort of a critical window, that critical period of like, like we talked earlier about like getting, getting trivialized, like along the, like I just missed that window. And so now like when I look at it, just on the one hand, you know, like even, even now, like I, cause I heard a lot of those arguments at Yale about like, on the one hand, race doesn't exist, but then it's this critically socially important thing. And, you know, okay, well, if race doesn't exist, what does it matter? Like what, um, what, uh, percentage of this demographic or that demographic makes up the campus? If like none of us are actually different, then who cares? And I could, I still can't reconcile that. Like, I, yeah, I must have missed uh, that developmental window. 
Yeah, I think you're also like a little bit too smart and a little bit too wanting to reason from first principles, like all these things or, or check the empirical justification for arguments. Like you can you can recognize, wait, you're making a very serious claim there. What's what's the evidence? Right. But most kids yeah. are not. They're just going to accept it. It was in my textbook. You know, Professor X like told me all this when I was a freshman. So but you're yeah. different. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something, you know, it's not just I think the brainwashing. I think there's something specific about this uh, race issue that I think causes difficulties. I mean, a lot of multi-ethnic countries do have um, racial preferences. They do have affirmative action. And I think, you know, I think the reason is that the, the, the group disparities really do make people uncomfortable. And particularly with the American history of uh, a black, you know, if, if you have a bunch of black students on campus who are arguing for one thing, and I, even though, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's not the overwhelming position in the black community overall that affirmative action is good. But look, among I, blacks who go to the Ivy Leagues and who are on you know, yeah. I, you know, Ivy League campuses, unquestionably, they are overwhelmingly in, for, in favor of affirmative action, right? I mean, who wants to disagree with them? I mean, no, no, nobody wants to, right? Yeah. I, I, it's a bad look. It's a bad look to be, discri- right. to be disagreeing with all those people, right? This is, so. I mean, this is the women's tears argument, but also it, it applies just as well to race. You know, white Americans don't want to be, uh, don't want to be seen as disagreeing with black people, particularly black people who have more of a sort of emotional stake in the issue, um, than most white Americans do or most pe- people of other races do. Uh, so yeah, there are, I mean, there are genuine, yeah, there are genuine, you know, things sort here. Sort of like opinion it's, cartels. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's gonna it's gonna cause discomfort. I mean, it's gonna cause discomfort. If, like, if they really, you know, don't have as much, you know, affirmative action uh, going forward, if the demographics of these universities do change, uh, there's gonna be a lot of discomfort. Maybe we'll get over it just because there's fewer minority, you know, affirmative action admits around to complain and make people feel uncomfortable. But um, yeah, I mean, it, they, they're sort of complicated, sort of uh, psychological issues involved here. What's going on with people when they think that, um, okay, so if this, this demographic is underrepresented in this field or in this college campus or, or discipline or what have you, I, then I guess the, like the, the typical response is that there must be some sort of discrimination, systemic or otherwise. But then if there's an overrepresentation of a demographic, what is the, what's, what's the progressive? Like, what's the steel man progressive response for like why Harvard is 20% Asian, whatever, or, or Berkeley, Berkeley might be a better example because there's no sort of quotas or anything. Like, wh- what is the sort of steel man progressive stance on why Berkeley is 40 plus percent yeah, Asian? The smartest possible liberal. I don't know. Like, I don't hear many of them say this, but I guess if I tried to imagine what the smartest liberal would say, it would be something like lines of, look, we are a society of, you know, where there's been historical disadvantages based on race. It hits blacks the hardest. Maybe it hits, you know, Hispanics to a lower extent. And look, Asians were also discriminated against, but like what the, what they accomplish in spite of that is like, you know, just evidence of their work ethic or, or whatever. And, you know, that's something we is should deal with. But okay. okay. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think they actually do say yeah. that. It's hard for them to argue. Uh, but I think it would, yeah. you know, I think the you know, best argument would be something along those lines. I don't think this is the smartest possible liberal argument, but the common one, which is used by smart liberals. It's just to kind of back away from the criteria that are used, uh, it, you know, for quote merit. So they just say like, oh, well, what, what difference does it make whether it's someone scored 1500 or 1600 at some point, they're all like qualified to be on mm. campus. And so you guys are sort of just foolishly overemphasizing all of these academic achievements of these Asians, which, which quote, make them quote, better qualified for at Harvard than some other group of quote, good students. So they just want to denigrate, tear down that whole thing. 
The ironic thing is then, though, if you ask them about their kids and you say, oh, how's Johnny doing in high school? And of course, you're talking to some liberal who's a professor or a lawyer or something. Then they get really mad because, they think, well, Johnny missed the national merit semifinalist cut. And I was so mad because I just I, I wanted to get him into the Kumon math program and he just wouldn't go. And it's like then they realize then they real they reveal that actually, no, they actually do believe in these various metrics. Um but publicly, they won't say that. They'll say, well, these, you guys are just being overly. Well, the anti-Asian anti discrimination is consistent with the official diversity justification because they say you want an institution that looks a lot like America and you want, you know, different groups. You could just say, well, Asians don't look like America. So we need to help white people. I mean, they don't want to say that. They don't want to say that. Yeah. They don't want to. We, need, we need to help white people. Is that what you said? <laughs> but it would, yeah. I mean, if they did want to make that argument, yeah, it would be consistent with the entire diversity rationale. Right. Well, they don't look like America, right? Because at least uh, among the Ivy League universities, they uh, whites are on paper officially underrepresented. Yeah, yeah. Right? I think so, uh, but, but, there's but something like worse. about 50%. It would be worse without yeah. affirmative action. There would, or maybe it'd be the same. I don't know. But there would be fewer, you know, with uh, the affirmative action holds back Asians. And that has yeah. that does well, have a justification in that, like, they already don't look like America because 20% of America is not Asian. Uh, and so if yeah. you made it 30 or 40%, that would even be, you know, a bigger problem from that perspective. Well, there's, there's an interesting sort of, uh, what inconsistency. I talked to a friend of mine, this Hispanic guy I went to Yale with and, and so, so on paper, you know, Yale's only what, like 50% white, but then you look around campus and it looks like a lot more than 50% white. Mm -hmm. Um, and my friend's, uh, explanation of this is that you basically have a lot of white people pretending to be Hispanic. Um, you know, like saying, you know, like, like making up some lie about how they had like a Cuban grandfather or like their step, you know, sometimes they use a step parent and they identify because they were raised by, you know, a step family member or something like that. And this is like good enough for them to, to claim yeah. Hispanic status. Um, you know, it's sort of like Elizabeth Warren route. Look, yeah. Look, well, look how long it took for Elizabeth Warren to get caught, right? She went all the way to becoming a professor. And yeah, then, like, they don't make you do a 23 to me, uh, when you apply to an Ivy League school. So. No, you don't. You could say anything. You know, th th that's the thing. Yeah. There must be, I mean, there must be an answer fraud going on, of course. Yeah. Oh, I know of at least two white guys who've pretended to be Hispanic and, and gay, one of them, to get uh, a college application, uh, seats, uh, finance internship. So one was for college, one was for finance internship. Both of them were successful. And these were like the whitest guys you've ever seen. So like, you know, this 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 uh, tactic works. I'm, I'm surprised more people don't do it. Yeah, I think the whole Hispanic category is incoherent because some of these guys would not be out of place on the streets of Lisbon or Madrid or Barcelona or Rome. And, but because they're descendants of down on, down on their luck imperialists, colonialists, they get all the benefits. They could be like literally genetically 100% European descended from people who colonized and genocided Latin Americans. But for some reason, because our diversity bureaucrats are not very smart, those guys get the bulk of the benefits of Affirmative action. Well, this is, this is going back to the government thing. It, it's not the, it doesn't necessarily that they're not very smart. It's that the government's got them in the business of counting people in a certain way and they just stick, stuck with the categories. It didn't matter if they didn't make sense. It didn't matter if Asians became overrepresented. There are four races in the world, whites, Hispanics, blacks, Asians, right? And who cares about anything else? Everything else has to be fitted to that worldview and sort of the social construction of race, I think is like the best argument for like government mattering here because I have a Google uh, Ngrams, uh, uh, you know, analysis in my uh, 
uh, in my book, which shows that these categories of Hispanic, Latino, A- Asian, American, API, they, you know, they take off, they become government categories before they take off in the culture, before they really become people are using them in books in the broader culture. So, you know, what cl- clearer example can you, hmm. can you get that the federal government is really shaping how people see them? Oh, I, I totally agree as a teacher. Yeah, I totally agree with your example, Richard. Um, the, the remark about them not being very clever is that when you explain this to them, their heads kind of explode and they can't yeah, yeah. deal with like, like this guy has no, you know, now that we have 23 and me and ancestry. So if I can say like, this guy has literally no indigenous, yeah. uh, admixture. Yeah. yeah. He's completely descended from the same people that in Northern Italy <laughs> or Northern Spain could easily pass as German if they wanted to. And you're giving this guy for an action because his last name is Spanish, right? But no. it's totally incoherent. Yeah. And I, um, I appreciate this from uh, the um, Supreme Court uh, decision, the majority opinion, and also the Gorsuch uh, concurrence really gets into sort of the absurdity of racial classification. Gorsuch uh, actually cites Dave Bernstein, who I interviewed on my pet podcast, who wrote a book called Classified on the History of This Stuff, and who I cite in my book. So it's it's great to see sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of great to see the, that argument making inroads. Yeah, so we're, we're okay. We're on the topic now of the Supreme Court decision. So maybe we could discuss that for a little bit. Um, Richard, you wrote a piece that I read on your Substack, which, you know, actually, to be honest, like brightened my mood a lot because although I was very happy, uh, at the decision and have actually been involved in this effort for 20 years now, um, I was still pretty pessimistic, you know, when you, you read that carve out language in the decision about, um, you know, Nothing in this decision prevents people from revealing the obstacles they've overcome or the adversity that they've overcome, perhaps race related. So, so my assumption was just the schools are going to cheat and use the personal essays as a way to distribute um, uh, racial preferences. But I think you had a take in your Substack saying it's not going to be as easy as that. And you, you expect actually some retrenchment to happen as a result of this. Maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I think that you, when you look at the you know the briefs filed by uh, the University of California system and the University of Michigan system, uh, they didn't they didn't recover uh, the blacks um, at uh, Berkeley. I think was seven percent or eight percent or something before they got rid of affirmative action. It's still three percent today. You could look at the entire system as a whole and see things didn't change that much. Uh, but Berkeley, it really hit hard because Berkeley has the highest admission standards in California of the public schools. Uh, same thing with, uh, the University of, uh, of Michigan. Um, you know, like at the UCLA law school, and then you look at the University of Michigan, University of Michigan law school. Uh, it did, it did have an effect. Um, and so this is the clearest thing, you know, this is the clearest thing we have, just numbers because you need affirmative action to get, you know, to get, uh, racial parity at top universities. Um, and so, yeah, it's not like they could do whatever they want. I mean, they were, they were sued in this case and they spent a lot of time fighting this case. Uh, because they want to do something very specific and it's not going to be as easy to just do the same thing. They can, you know, fudge, they can, you know, uh, they can, you know, uh, fudge the process a little bit, but they can't create a paper trail because they're going to be sued and they're going to be doing things that are, uh, clearly illegal. And, you know, when you have discovery and you're, you know, you can find all these things in a lawsuit, I mean, you can, you can, uh, get in trouble there. Um, and so, yeah, I do expect we will see, we will see sort of a, a shift in the graphics of universities, but like I the one thing I should, you know, uh, emphasize is that, look, if, if, uh, you know, if three Supreme Court justices, you know, are, uh, you know, uh, die in a plane crash and right now Biden gets to appoint the other three, this won't matter. This, you know, even if they, they don't even have to overturn this case, 
you know, it's gonna even if the Supreme even, even if the Supreme Court composition stays the same, if the Democrats are still in power and they are uh, appointing all the judges at the um, at the circuit court level and at the district court level who are interpreting this uh, the uh, Supreme Court uh, decision um, in SFFA, um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna hollow it out. So, like what what Robert said about you know it's okay, you know, you can still mention race in an essay if this I mean how that is read will really depend on who is you know interpreting these things. So. Yeah, I mean, this is going to, this alone makes a difference. Um, but there are elections and there are courts and uh, how much of a difference it matters in the end is going to depend on, you know, 2024 and 2026 and 2028 and which old people die at the right times. That's, that's just our system. Yeah. I agree with that. Now, one difference is that when Prop 209 passed in California and the equivalent, uh, ballot initiative in Michigan, the schools were caught off guard and Actually, the language from the administrators at that time was, wow, we did have this big drop in diversity. Asians are not diverse. So we had this huge drop in diversity. Um, but it's not our fault because this was forced on us by this crazy ballot measure. And we're good. We're still good, good people. This is a bad outcome, but it's not our fault. But they kind of lived with it. And then gradually what Sander would say is they started cheating more and more. So that the amount of cheating has been ramping up. In this case, Harvard and many of these other schools immediately said defiantly, you see that you, they quoted Robert's language and they say, you see that language, we're going to drive a Mack truck through that language. I mean, they literally sent that out to the whole Harvard community. I received the email. So, so it's a little bit different to the situation, uh, between what happened with 209 and, you know, state yeah, measures. But they also say, they also say, well, of course, abide by the, you know, by the law. So yeah, I mean, it's going to be disputed and, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, and you know, it's good. And like, it's possible that they just, like, and I say this in, in the piece, it's possible that they just get rid of all standards and just have a lottery system. That's going to have an effect. They didn't want to do that. That's not what they want to do. Now, maybe they no, value diversity so that. much. They'll get rid of all standards in order to get diversity because just having enough blacks and Hispanics is just like such an ideological imperative for them. But that's going to have costs for the universities and the broader society. There's going to be, you know, it's, and, and it's different from like getting rid of affirmative action at just one, you know, just the UC system or just Michigan to have competition within universities. Well, some universities can maybe take the Supreme Court more seriously than others. Um, you know, some of them will maintain standards and some of them will not. There's going to be, you know, selection pressures here too. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, you know, to be optimistic and to think that, you know, there's, there's going to be an effect here. Now we can't, it, it could end up worse. Um, you know, like there's always a possibility that like, we just have like, they all become communist, you know, they all become communes, you know, Marxist communes uh, and like, you know, we don't have standards at all. And like, we wish we could go back to the days of affirmative action. Uh, but you know, you're causing them some discomfort and you just have to sort of understand that the world is unpredictable and you're dealing with ideologically bad actors. And you know, that's just an unfortunate reality of the world. Are these schools still um, test optional? The the SAT is that is that no longer required for Harvard? I think it's true for Yale. Uh, I know MIT reversed that somewhat recently, but a lot of these places have gone like fully test optional, right? University of Chicago, I think, as well. I can I can tell you the situation um, because my kids are high school age kids, so I'm pretty familiar with what's going on right now with college applications. Um, MIT um, went test optional because of COVID. But then they did an internal study and realized they could, they were not, they were admitting kids that were struggling with the MIT curriculum when they didn't have the information from the test scores. So they went back to requiring test scores. And I believe they're the only elite 
university right now that requires it. Even Caltech doesn't. In fact, Caltech went the other way. Caltech is going to be destroyed because they basically now don't. No. They just said we're not accepting test scores now and forever, which is 100% against the. It's faculty. not even optional. It's not even optional. They warn you in the application not to write your scores anywhere. <laughs> wow. So and then in the, middle, in the middle, our schools like Harvard and Yale, where it's optional. And I think people interpret that. I was even reading what some admissions, you know, um, consultants and such were saying, guidance counselors, they were saying like, well, you know, if you're in, not in a, you know, preferred category, you better submit high scores or you don't have a good chance yet. But then for other groups, I think Harvard is counting on there being a much, uh, much, uh, less dense data trail for the people who they're going to grant preference one way or the other. And it's just going to be much harder to compare with what they're doing because there just won't be scores for whole subset of students. So just, you know, having, having done a bunch of the statistical analysis related to this SFFA suit and what they tried to demonstrate, if you just tried to imagine doing that without having some kind of standardized scores uh, across the board, it's just very tough, would be that much tougher to prove uh, that the school is up to no good. And so they're, they're kind of just laying the groundwork for that situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you gotta, I mean, you've gotta, you've gotta let them, I mean, they're private institutions in the, in the end. And if they really, you know, are just committed to, you know, uh, racial diversity over all else, yeah, they're, you know, they're going to find a way. And I, but I think that like, you know, in a way that's sort of the, you know, I, I think what happened during COVID, I think the, you know, the sort of the ideological discrediting of the education system has a lot of ways been good. I have an article on uh, the school choice movement and there's just been radical changes at the state level in the last year or so. And this was because, I mean, COVID-19 and the rise of critical race theory and stuff, we have like eight or nine states now that just say, we're privatizing education. Anyone who wants to can check out of the education system. We'll give you a voucher and you can use it on homeschooling or private schooling or whatever you want. Uh, we'll see what the empirical, uh, you know, results of this are, but it, it makes me very hopeful. And, you know, if the universities just be, just want to discredit themselves the way public education has, you know, great. I, I think universities have, especially universities have too big of a role to play in our society. The Caltech one is interesting that they wouldn't even want the test scores. So I spoke with a professor a few weeks ago. He's a, a STEM professor and basically said that, uh, you know, they, they made the GRE test optional in his department. And the, the, I think it was the department chair said something like, um, ever since we eliminated, or no, no, ever since we made the GRE uh, optional, uh, our diversity scores have improved and so have our average GRE scores. And uh, my friend said, well, that's, that's because only... <laughs> It's because only the Asian applicants are submitting their scores now. And the department chair was like, yeah, but still, like, you know, how great for our department that we have, you know, more diversity and higher test scores uh, yeah. simultaneously. It's like a win-win, right? Like, in a yeah, way, it's, a it's like strategic. That makes sense. So then to just eliminate it, like, this, just we're not even going to take the score. That's just mind-blowing. But I guess, yeah, if you don't want a paper trail, if you're really committed to diversity above all else, above merit or or uh, what a quality... Uh, pool of applicants, man, that is really, yeah, that's, that's, that's wild. If you're a hardcore professor at Caltech, and I know some, uh, you know, you're not happy about this, but on the other hand, you have to balance that against things like, you know, one of the founders of Caltech was a guy called Robert Milliken, who was the first person to measure the charge of the electron. So not a, not a inconsequential guy in the history of science. And in the middle of the Caltech campus, there's this huge library. Uh, which is by far the tallest building on campus. And it used to be called Millican Library. 
But as of the summer of Floyd and all kinds of craziness, now it's no longer called Millikan Library because Millikan was a, quote, eugenicist, apparently. So if you're a professor at Caltech, uh, you're probably not going to want to say too much about how they're admitting undergrads because look what happened to old Millikan. Like if you didn't, if you weren't the guy who figured out the structure of DNA or measured uh, the charge of the electron, you're probably at jeopardy. <laughs> you probably just want to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the affirmative action thing. I mean, I, I guess I was I was less optimistic than than you, Richard. I mean, I've just seen so many stories. So many people are just a hundred percent committed to this idea of diversity. And then, I, yeah, I saw the you know the, the the Harvard statement. Some of the other elite schools wrote something similar about how they're going to comply with this decision. Wink, wink. Basically, we found a loophole. And um, yeah, but I also wonder if these like if they go to a lottery system if they're going to eliminate the test requirement, if eventually, like, will anything ever destroy the the prestige of these schools? You know, I've heard this interesting argument that, uh, you know, one reason why these elite universities don't want to accept too many Asians is because they, they Harvard wouldn't be Harvard if it took too many Asians. You guys might have heard this argument before. But then the the historical parallel that everyone usually invokes is the the, the lifting of the Jewish quotas in the mid-20th century that once... You know, once the, the, the smart Jewish students supplanted the, the WASP elites, I don't think these universities actually lost their prestige, right? Because they were taking really smart students. And maybe that is the sort of the, the, the source of their status is actually having like smart, talented, uh, people and whatever, um, uh, people think now. I mean, if, if, if suddenly Harvard were to become 50%, you know, really smart Asians, would they actually lose much prestige? Would that be worse than just doing a lottery system and, being being diverse like what's what's more sort of uh prestigious being diverse or being smart yeah you're forcing them into some choices they don't have to make i think that's why they fought for the birth somebody uh you know i just had a realization that the, the legacy admissions i mean liberals are really going hard after legacy admissions and so one thing you know i think that 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 could hurt them if, the, if they're getting rid of affirmative action makes it harder to have legacy admissions because legacy admissions you know they get they get a lot of money out of legacy admissions um, maybe, maybe it was necessary. Maybe they needed these, you know, give preferences to blacks and Hispanics to justify giving preferences to, to rich white people. Other times it wouldn't have worked. Uh, you, you, I mean, these are bad actors and you're forcing them into tough decisions. And I think that's a, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. Two, two empirical points for you. So I, I had a conversation over the July 4th weekend with a, uh, a big hedge fund guy who's a, a donor and he was just outraged at them going after legacies because in his, his point was the reason they're able to offer such favorable financial aid packages to underrepresented minorities who, you know, you get in uh, on preference and then it's free, right? So pretty good deal. I mean, it's amazing that these schools could do that, but it's mainly because they are so successful at fundraising, but that fundraising is linked to preference for legacy. So he just said, they're just going to kill the whole thing if they get rid of legacy. Um, one empirical point. Another empirical point from him, you know, he's a hedge fund guy, former banker at Goldman and other places. He said the way they're doing recruitment now at these big banks and also McKinsey and places like this, the first actually two levels of screening are all online and then maybe have some tests or some interview questions or something. So the, the leg up you have from being a Harvard or Ivy grad is actually being diluted. Like, like those processes that those companies are putting in place are actually biasing a little more toward meritocratic. So even though you went to Ohio State, if you're really sharp, 
those first two screeners might take out a lot of Ivy kids and leave in a lot more state flagship kids. So he he actually said that was a hopeful thing from his perspective that that the, that that the the new methodology of corporate recruiting is actually uh, reducing the amount of advantage that graduates have. How do they, how they know they don't cheat on the online screening? I don't know how they do it. I mean, they could have a little camera on you while you're doing. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what platform they use to do these screens. But you know, the same way we professors have to resort to various methods to make sure students are cheating on some of our online assessments. I mean, there are what there are services that you can buy where there's actually like guys with like a whole bunch of different screens on their screen and they're watching to see if anybody looks like they're cheating. So I don't know how they do it, but. These screening um, processes, this is some kind of like a, like a, like a, like a psychometric test or something along those lines. Is that, is that what it is? I need to ask him in more detail, but, um, you know, it could be maybe not that sophisticated, but it could be like first level of screenings. You got to submit your resume and they're looking carefully at your resume and you might even say, okay, well, fine. They're always going to weight the Harvard, the Yale guys resume higher than the Ohio state guys. But it's actually looking at like, what courses did this guy take and what grades he got a kid with a 4.0 at Ohio State still, you know, probably has a good chance of getting advanced to the next level. Whereas in the older, more clubby system, yeah. maybe that guy was just excluded even at level one, but now he can get through level one. And then maybe for level two, they take a little test on finance or something like that. I don't know. But um, he, he said that corporate recruiting was getting more meritocratic over time. So, hmm. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't have enough faith in markets. They just think that universities can do whatever they want. You know, they can, they can all be, you know, they you can just let in the dumbest people. They can just go off and they'll all get, you know, cozy jobs at hedge funds or, you know, banks or, or whatever. And no, the, you know, there are market forces that discipline these things. So most of the students it. from the elite universities who apply at elite firms don't get hired, actually. You know, like it's easy to see from, you know, uh, that, that sort of selection bias, that sort of, um, you know, after the fact, you look at, you know, whatever Goldman or whatever, and you see that most of their employees or staff are, are um, graduates of these elite universities. But there was this process beforehand where, you know, there are a lot of people from fancy universities who apply and most of them actually fail. Um, a lot of them are, you know, they sort of get filtered out along the way. Um, you know, I know people who have gone through that sort of brutal process of even getting hired, but then later you get sort of laid off because of just the, how intense the workload is um, or you just sort of burn out. So... Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I think that makes sense that the that, that they will sort of update right the, the the market forces. But then what I what I worry about is that the universities won't do this, and so you know maybe maybe to a, an elite consultancy uh, a degree from whatever Stanford or Princeton doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore, or they're willing to sort of expand and look look at Ohio State and some of these other places. But within the university system, there's that that name is still going to probably be valued the, the to the same amount to the same degree. Yep. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You won't, I don't think you can fully eliminate the value, the prestige value anytime soon. It will take a long time, I think, before it is really materially diluted away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys are optimistic. Now, uh, how do you think this is going to bleed over into other aspects of, um, so, so they, they, they strongly invoke the equal protection clause, right? Of the 14th amendment and they, they interpret it as, literally equal treatment, right? For different racial groups. So now there seem to be lots of, let's say on the corporate hiring side or, or wherever examples where that's, you know, clearly not the case. There are groups getting very strong preferences now. Do you think that that will enable 
or at least signal to attorneys to, to, to pursue legal challenges to these private sector preferences? Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this is actually more important. Like I say, we talk so much and focus so much on universities, but look, there's the, the rest of the world out there. And uh, yeah, the disparate impact, I mean, uh, 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 Clarence Thomas in one uh, a concurrence said, you know, the whole, whole intellectual foundation of uh, disparate impact is built on a house of sands, a house of sand, right? Um, and so, yeah, this thing, I mean, this, the, but this doesn't get litigated actually as much as affirmative action for the same reason that, you know, we talked about before. Most, you know, intellectuals care more about affirmative action than they do, you know, becoming a manager at Walmart or an executive or, uh, or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I think that like, I think conservatives are focusing on this. There's this, uh, you know, the, the, the America first, there's a public interest firm, uh, run by Stephen Miller that's, uh, you know, sending letters and, uh, to corporations and threatening to sue them. You know, it's like, like with the, uh, affirmative action at universities thing, it depends on which judge, uh, you get. I mean, we have a good indication how the Supreme Court will rule, uh, on these things. I, I think there's no reason to think that they're going to, you know, they're skeptical of these, uh, diversity at universities, but, you know, which had more, you know, actually more legal support and more legal precedent than some of this other stuff that are just going on in the private sector. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's, you know, there's potential to be major change here. By the way, the, um, you know, the, uh, this guy, Ed Bloom, B-L-U-M, the guy who, um, you know, basically has been working on this project for 20 years now. Um, and he's the main guy behind SFA. If you're at all interested in the history of this, I, I, I think it's still up on YouTube. So he lives in Houston, I believe, and he's friendly with the Houston Asian American, I would say actually Chinese American community down there. So. There's actually a video of Ed Bloom giving a talk to a group of Chinese Americans. Um, and the group that he's meeting with, like he's old friends with one of the guys in the group. And um, those guys are not Polish at all. They speak broken English. They're recent immigrants. It's really, they're very like sincere, clearly not elite <laughs> Americans. Um, you know, they might be professionals, but they speak broken English and stuff. And they have heavy accents. But Blute gets up there and talks about his motivations for why he's pursuing this challenge. And I invite everybody to look into this because, like, of course, on the left, they think Bloom is, I mean, he's Jewish, but he's a secret Nazi evil guy or something, right wing ideologue. You know, they, they could believe anything about Bloom. And even on the right, I think people who are totally supportive of SFFA, they don't really know anything about this guy, Bloom. But if you, if you listen to this talk, he comes across as 100% sincere not wanting what happened to his forebears, Jewish applicants to the Ivy League, to happen to these brown Americans who happen to be from Asia. And I don't, you know, if he's acting, he's a better actor than Robert De Niro. Okay. I, I actually take him at face value. And I, I mean, I've communicated with this guy over the years. So um, if you're at all interested in how things happen, like the level of commitment and sincere you know, hard work over decades that it takes to put the needle to get a case to the Supreme Court and win it. It's just, it's an amazing story. I invite anybody who's interested in this topic, I, I invite you to look and try to go on YouTube and try to find this video. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. You know, I, so I mentioned before the the gap between like, you know, uh, the, the general public opinion and the elites. Um, I saw, I saw one, one poll, I think this was in Pew, which showed so so generally speaking, unsurprisingly, people with who college graduates, postgraduate degrees, they were the most supportive relative to people without degrees. Um, this was true for whites and for for blacks as well. That less educated whites, less educated blacks were far less supportive of affirmative action. 
I didn't see anything on Asians, but I would love to see that as well, because that's, you know, I, I see, you know, in response to the Supreme Court decision, you know, I look at Instagram and I look at, well, you know, of course, like prestige media too, social media and prestige media, all of these Asian uh, students and graduates of these elite universities are just, you know, screeching in tears how horrible it is that these universities are, um, you know, no longer able to, to, um, to discriminate based on race. And to me, it's just fascinating, like, that they, they see, they themselves seem to have sort of no connection with the kinds of people you're describing, Steve, of people with, with, you know, heavy accents, broken English, people who are also like trying to make their way in America. And for these elite Asians, just know, like, I don't know if it doesn't occur to them or if they just don't care or if it really is, uh, you know, kind of this, uh, duplicitous signaling game that they're playing. But, um, yeah, to see the, the distance, the gap between those two, you know, those so two I, I think, you know, Asians might have a little bit of, you know, they might be a little bit shifted in terms of conformism relative to other groups. So they maybe have a tendency to be like students who pay attention and are conformed to what their professors tell them. So you do have these highly educated, maybe status signaling Asians who really want to align with affirmative action and against uh, SFF. A. So there is definitely that population. And I think with a nod to Richard, like maybe they're disproportionately female. Um, whereas I would say the following, every meeting I go to, which whether it's a rationalist meeting or a tech meeting in Silicon Valley, or even sometimes a physics meeting, I don't have male, young male Asian Americans, whether South Asian or East Asian, come up to me. They will come up to me and say, hey, are you Steve Shue? And then they'll say, I've been reading about this stuff on your blog for 20 years or 10 years. And I just want to say thank you because this system is bullshit. And, and most of these guys are actually radicalized. Like they're actually, because hmm. if you're 17 and you're a, like a gunner, you're a smart Asian American kid and you're, what's your dream? Your dream is to get into a top university and you worked your fucking ass off in high school, taking AP classes and, and doing all that stuff. Um, so you care about it. You care about it. And then they fuck you. And you see people who are much less qualified than you, even white kids who are less qualified than you getting into the top schools and you don't get into the top schools. These kids are radicalized. And uh, they, of course, they're not going to shout it off. The, you know, they might work at McKinsey. They're not going to go into the office at McKinsey and say it out loud to their people. But when they see me, they make a little beeline and they say like, hey, are you Steve Shue? And then they, so I, 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 it's a biased sample, but I think there are a shit ton of radicalized, mostly male, young Asian Americans who know the score. Let's just put it that way. So hmm. that's my experience. Yeah. It's anecdotal. I mean, we're still waiting for the, like we, we, we have a Vivek Ramaswamy, we have a South Asian. We'll see if there's going to be, you know, I'm interested if people we'll ever see East Asians in the culture, sort of the East Asian male, you know, you have these leftists who write these. Uh, articles about how he's sort of invisible and it's, it's, it's true, but you know, we'll see if it stays that way. Wait, wait, who's invisible? Vivek is invisible? Not Vivek. No, East Asian men. I mean, you've seen these articles. Oh, East Asian. Like, I think Wesley Yang might, might touch on this, that sort of East Asians are just sort of, uh, you know, and males are sort of, well, not, not females as much. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, East Asian female celebrities for a while. I mean, going back to like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, what's her name? Connie, uh, Connie Chang, what's her name? The, the old, uh, yeah, I mean, we've had this for decades. Um, but yeah, East Asian males, just a very, very, uh, you know, high levels of underrepresentation, uh, in the culture, you know, Andrew Yang notwithstanding. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting if that ever 
changes. I bring up Vivek because we do see, we do see South Asians. I mean, they seem to be, you know, well-represented in politics, uh, but East Asians, not so much. I did see that. Wasn't there a study on this about like the, the bamboo ceiling doesn't affect South Asians as much yeah, as yeah, East a, Asians? They're, they're, and they should, they're, they're, they're different. I mean, they're different races. They're different. Lo- loquacious, yeah, you know, just, different, different customs, different yeah. traits. Yeah. <laughs> the, the co-founder of my new startup, which is an AI large language model startup. Uh, my co-founder is a guy called Tushar Chef, who's South Asian, grew up in Michigan, um, and uh, was actually in the Obama White House at one point as a policy guy. And he and I have had this discussion just recently about, you know, there are very, very many South Asians who have risen to high positions now in both in the UK and, and the US and, and far fewer East Asians. And so the question is like, what, what's, this is debated a lot online too. Like, and I'll, I'll just give you my take on it, which is that, first of all, if you look at India, you're talking about a billion people and all the elites there speak English. So the schools are English-based. And so you have a much bigger reservoir of people hmm. who can speak English and operate well in a Western country than you have originating from China. So that's that's one factor. Another factor related to that is that you know, Hindi is an Indo-European language. So if you're studying Hindi, you'll see a lot of cognates. So it's much easier to learn English from a Hindi base than from, say, a Chinese or Japanese or Korean base. Now, the other issue is that, you know, while Americans were sleeping, you know, the Chinese built effectively the large, in, in some sense, the largest economy in the world. So there was plenty of openings for Chinese people, East Asian people to rise to the top of huge companies like TSMC or, or, or BYD or, you know, uh, Huawei, you know, like they didn't have to come to the West and try to rise within the West. They had a, a continent sized country to build up over the last 30 years. So, so the, 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 the human capital pool was split. Only a smaller fraction of the human capital pool came to the West. If you compare East Asians versus South Asians. And then the final thing, which is something my, my dad emphasized to me when I was growing up is that if you're a Confucian, the whole Western business style and political style is just wrong for you. So, so in other words, like Confucians are taught not to talk too much. It's kind of shameful to go into a meeting and dominate the meeting. It's, you're not supposed to do that. Actually, it's considered bad. And so you, you would be penalized. So if you were at a Chinese company and you kept dominating every meeting and inserting your opinion and you were kind of a loud, brash guy, loquacious guy, the other Chinese guys would be like, you know, what's wrong with this guy? We're not promoting. He, he's not, he's not going to get the promotion. Someone else is going to. So just a different cultural style that work, you know, works their cultural style, the South Asian cultural style works better in the West than the East Asian cultural style. So I, I think those are the main factors. And there might even be, if you're a behavior geneticist, you might even say there's like some, maybe some systematic shift in personality types or something like that between the different populations. I think that's more speculative, but uh, I think all those factors basically combine to what we see now, which is that, you know, this guy Vivek, but maybe there isn't any corresponding East Asian guy like him. Yeah. I think- no, and Andrew Yang, I know Richard's not a fan though. I no, Andrew Yang, I, like I, mean, I like Andrew Yang. I like, I mean, I like him. <laughs> uh, the, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the language thing, I mean, these Indians, Americans, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're usually second generation. I don't know if I, you know, by the, this language thing, because it, it, it is, you know, it is the second generation that tends to be intellectually, you know, leaders or political leaders. Uh, so they, you know, and these Asian kids, they do 
do well enough on, you know, math Olympians. They do, they do good on the test taking and the, uh, the other sort of objective measures. And so yeah, we, if, they, if it's human capital, that one's going to be a kid. It's a separate question. You could say like, okay, of the kids born and raised in the U.S., are South Asians doing better or worse than East Asians? And then that's a separate comparison. But if you, if you look at the total pool, like, of course, like the CEO of Google and the CEO of Microsoft, they didn't grow up here. They came from India. So then you could say, well, is there an equivalent pool of people who could have come from China and obtained those positions at Google and Microsoft? And it's, it's, it's a lesser pool because A, more people stayed to build the economy in China. And secondly, like very few of those people could have ever gotten to the level of English proficiency, actually, that Sadia and... I did recently uh, learn that a sh- like a shockingly high number, like I wouldn't have uh, predicted this, of, of East Asian uh, like Americans of East Asian descent, uh, something like 65%, uh, were, were not born in the U S. So it's actually like most Asians in America are, are, uh, yeah, they're, they're not sort of native born citizens. Yeah. So yeah, there, there is something maybe, yeah, the, this, I guess would be consistent with your point, Steve, that, if you, you know, if you're from a different culture and yeah, if you want to yeah, compare the, the ones US. that were born here, I agree with Richard, the language thing is probably not the issue at that point, but, um, but you the know, personality a, thing or the Confucian values thing might, might matter, actually. You know, there's a book uh, called the, the, the China, Chinese Model, I think by a guy named Daniel Bell that I read. It. it It had a passage that, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it sort of floored me if it's true. He said, in the entire history of the East Asian democracies, they'd never produced a single politician who was known for being a great public speaker. Is this true? Does you have any idea if that's true? Because if true, that is a pretty, that's a pretty remarkable fact. I'm not sure that that's actually true. Um... I would have to think about it, but but I do think that public speaking wasn't necessarily considered one of the main criteria for choosing, you know, a, a leader. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, but it's, it's interesting. It seems it seems of the same kind, right? It seems yeah. like you know you miss big man, sort of charismatic, sort of personality, the kind of person who succeeds in like corporate America or like becomes a great entrepreneur, right? And then if it's like Asians are also not producing people who are great, you know, public speakers still. You know, that's, that, that's also interesting. It seems like there's a, uh, there's a personality cluster here that's, that's explaining a lot. I, so we're I talking a lot about like, uh, go ahead, Graf. Well, I, I was just going to say that, well, you know, we've been talking a lot about like personality traits, cultural traits, these kind of differences, but also is there, is there a difference in interest? You know, like do South Asians have a stronger interest in leadership positions or political positions or being in a sort of a, the center of attention, say, no, compared well, to East Asians, or is that sort of culture? Yeah, that seems like it's all part of that. Sort of intertwined, sure. It could be, you know, it would be interesting if you took like, oh, hey, you could do this as research, Rob. Um, for for South Asians and East Asians that are born and raised in say, Western play, are there systematic big five personality shifts between those populations? I wouldn't be that surprised. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if the South Asians are a little higher on extroversion and openness, maybe that. Right. And that maybe like the, the assertiveness. Or look facet. up, you know what you should look up if you have the data on uh, marriages. Uh, if the men, uh, if the assertiveness probably can be measured in uh, men of one race marrying the women of, of other races, right? I think that that's probably a, a <laughs> good proxy. Yeah. I think, I think that that would be very interesting. I, I, yes. you see, you have the Asian data, but uh, and, uh, Indians don't actually outmarry that much. So maybe it's actually hard to, hard to study, but it would be interesting if we did have data. Number of messages sent from a dating app yeah, that profile. Would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, the Cupid stuff did have it broken down. I, I, they did have it broken down by, uh, 
not maybe not number of messages. I mean, there's have, there's you know there's the there Middle Easterners, there were South Asians. I think there were East Asians. The, the old OK Cupid data is really good. I don't know about number of messages. Um, yeah, but yeah, that would be interesting too. Willingness to spam randos on Twitter, <laughs> you know, like I, I just anecdotally, oh, yeah, I do get a lot of like messages source. from Indian guys yeah. and not so many from East Asian guys. Same here. Yeah, same know. here. It's a great data source, actually, because you see who's paying attention and who's, you know, who's participating in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But then when I host, when I host in-person meetups, a lot of, a lot of East Asian guys show up and, and, and a couple of women on occasion too, as well. So, you know, I think it's, you know, if it, what's a, what's a better measure of extroversion showing up in person to meet someone or, you know, spamming someone on Twitter, asking them to promote your stuff, you know, like yeah, read this article. Yeah. yeah so the other yeah. funny thing I would say is that, you know, my wife is from Taiwan and she, she follows, you know, is able to follow much more carefully, like what's going on in like culture in China, Taiwan and stuff like that. And, and. You know, when I, being an Asian American, I'm familiar with all the stereotypes, right? Of like the way that, you know, uh, Chinese people in America or Koreans in America are supposed to be. But she just laughs because she knows all, she knows plenty of people with like the big man personality or the, the slutty party girl personality. Like they, they have all types over there too, but they're not as constrained by being like, if you're a tiny minority in this alien culture, you're, you're not really that free to be yourself. But if you're in, Beijing or Shenzhen, you, you can be yourself and you do see like crazy wide range of, you know, personality types and way this ways that people behave and stuff like that. But you, you have to be attuned to it. You can't just be some, you know, uh, Western guy who doesn't really know anything about what's happening there and make a judgment about it. Oh, interesting. So you think that uh, being a, be like an ethnic minority may sort of compress uh, differences within a, yeah, a uh, that sort of ethnic group? A little bit, or or maybe it's a little harder for the other group to see like the diversity of stuff that's going on within your little community. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, they're definitely crazy, like playboy player types in, you know, Gangnam or Tokyo or Shanghai. There's no doubt. Right. But you don't, you don't really think of there being that many of those in, even in Los Angeles, uh, let alone should like, be reflected. But you, could, you could probably reflect that in out of wedlock births and crime rate. Right. If there really was that, <laughs> those oh my guys, God, maybe you, currently there, there might not be. If you look into like the like just sort of shady quasi criminal like type guys in China, like um, the kinds of activities like, you know, pimps, drug dealers, you know, con artists, stuff. there's all kinds of crazy, nasty stuff that those guys get up to that, you know, white Americans probably just can't imagine, yeah. you know, like average Asian Americans doing that stuff unless it's some like triad gang stereotype. But, but yeah, I mean, if you, if you could read the papers over there, you'd see, like, wow, there's all this kind of crazy, there's a crazy nightlife demimon going on over there. Yeah. It's right. like maybe it's like the opposite. Maybe like, because they don't have that much diversity in their society, they can exaggerate these differences. It's sort of like how, like the last names in English, they were like, black is like an English last name. Oh, that guy's really black. He's just like the darkest Englishman, right? And this guy's brown and this guy's, this guy's white. So maybe it, it's sort of the argument is the opposite. Like in America, we have like a, better understanding of human variation. Well, if you're a homogenous society, like small differences seem like gigantic. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not just counting the possibility that the society could be more homogenous, uh, you know, than say America or say so probably is more homogenous in America for sure. But, the, but there's still within that homogeneity, there is, there, there are kind of all types. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Yeah. Yeah. The slutty party girl. Yeah. You still see that in America. You do see the Asians. Using Tila, Tila Tequila. Is she Chinese? What is Tila Tequila? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that name in like 15 years. 
tequila yeah. tequila uh, steve man richard this is like 2005 like really you know she oh she's she's vietnamese but uh yeah she was uh oh, vietnamese she she'd become like a white nationalist like a couple of years ago you didn't see this what like in 2015 right, yeah. like not like a nazi like more than a white nationalist she was like wow we think these crazy things and they got banned anyway some some slutty like mpb <laughs> asian girl who was like big and well i guess i guess so them. so i guess you do know some of that type here <laughs> yeah big tequila, tequila follower yeah <laughs> diversity is our strength yeah. yes so rob you i think you said you have to go in 10 minutes is that about uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Any any last topics? I think we haven't heard that much from Rob. So, may, Rob, you want to? Sorry, want to? Oh, it's not at all. I mean, you know, we've I think we've 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 covered a lot of ground here. I mean, yeah, just yeah, you know, we we talked about Richard's book. We talked about affirmative action. I've uh, yeah, I'm 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 somewhat skeptical. It will be nice to uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. I like the position Richard. You know, Richard mentioned earlier that we've put them in a sort of a tough tough spot. And however they respond, you know, it, it's just so easy, like to like no, no one seems to be on the side of the elite universities, regardless of what they do. They're going to get attacked either from the right or from the left. And it is it is uh, interesting to see, you know, them get attacked from from the left. But I, well, yeah. And Richard, you you're you're a skeptic of class based affirmative action. I think, you know, I think you made a pretty persuasive argument on on that. But you you'd you'd mentioned um you mentioned this in our, in our talk to in our in our panel discussion about how uh children or or yeah pe- people shouldn't be punished for their parents success uh and yet in your your piece you'd mentioned how um you know if you have two people of of equivalent ability but one comes from from the rich family you should take the person from from the rich family is that is that right or or the the more I, sort I, of talented family there's an argument for it right an I, argument for it. people are trying to make the case that you should, yeah. you know, give uh, everyone treats it as self-evident. Uh, at least they people think yeah. UATX that like the person from the worst background is going to be better off. And I say no. I, you know, I don't know. They, yeah. There's things that go in both directions. Um, I'd let private institutions do what they want, but I don't definitely don't want like to force them all not to do legacies or to uh, uh, to have cl- uh, class-based preferences and then try to sort of like make that the model that replaces DEI. I just think that'll be a disaster. Yeah, yeah, that shocked me. I mean, just the the the, the sort of the energy and the fervor. So yeah, on the, uh, that, that the, the students at UATX had this too about like how important it was f- to to give disadvantaged, like economically disadvantaged yeah, I mean, a lot of people, people like, um, some and, kind of yeah benefit. I think a lot of people who are like anti woke want to be like you know I'm still a good person. I'm still like you. They want to be on the side of the oppressed and the dispossessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I don't think like I think it's enough to just say like let's just focus on merit and you know naturally some some people from from poor backgrounds or or uh, you know racial ethnic minorities like you're just naturally going to get like just random variations. Some of them are going to get in, but like the the tinkering thing like the the willingness to hold people to lower standards regardless of where they're from or what their upbringing was like that to me is just like it seems so obviously wrong um yeah i think i think though like just at a purely like technocratic from a technocratic perspective you could say like oh the kid who didn't go to one of these top high schools and his parents couldn't hire uh admissions con- uh, consultants and and sat tutors their score might actually underrepresent their ability, right? So, so there is a just a yeah. really technical reason why you might want to give them a little boost, just trying to get out their true ability, uh, which is maybe not as well represented in the, in the file. So, yeah, I, 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 I can, hmm. yeah, yeah, I can, I can believe that to some extent. Um, 
I mean, but I, I think like, yeah, in, in, in barring some, some extremely unusual circumstances, like I took an IQ test when I was a kid living in the foster homes and I'm sure it like very, it, it was a, you know, very inaccurate, um, representation of my latent ability, but that was like an extremely unusual situation. Um, I think like most, you know, so if you look like, you know, what is it like poor, poor children in the U S are four times more likely to graduate from, from college than foster kids. And I mean, I think like if you're, if you're poor, but you're not like in an extremely unusual and unstable situation, like your, your talents and your abilities will, will probably be pretty apparent pretty early on. Um, and so the argument that like, yeah, maybe these, these, these grades and these scores aren't, aren't reliable. I don't know if I, if I, or, or aren't valid rather. I don't know if I, if I buy that. One thing I would I, like in terms of just practical policy, I think like the SAT should just be made like compulsory and free. Um, I do think like, like a lot of, a lot of students, um, whose parents didn't go to college, like they're not even aware, like when the SAT takes place or they're not aware that they can get some kind of a reduced, um, reduced fee or a waiver. Uh, so I think like that would be like a very simple way to whatever, increase some kind of diversity without having to lower standards or lower merit, just give everyone the test and see who's doing well on them. I mean, do we even know like it's better for high IQ kids from for backgrounds to go to college, best college possible rather than try to make them. I mean, like, do we like, I, I'm not sure that we, we know that. I mean, I know a lot of people who are at grad school and, you know, in their thirties making, you know, $30,000 a year just because they, you know, they stated what it got as much school. Because <laughs> they're good at tests. Plus, yeah, they just were too good. Yeah, no, Richard, hyper specialized. If they were worse at tests, they'd be richer. Yeah, I think instead so. Instead of well, letting them go to grad school, Richard, you gave them some entrepreneurship boot camp or something, or how to be a player boot camp. I'd love, yeah, I'd like might, that. I mean, rather than I say, yeah, give something, some real pick life up coaching. Some, yeah, something yeah. outside of universities. I just so, think the whole university model is the. Problem. Last semester, I taught a class at Michigan State for graduate students, most of the people were PhD students in engineering and physics, and it was about tech, technology entrepreneurship. And these kids knew nothing. They didn't know how the banking system worked. They didn't know how the stock market worked. I mean, they were all highly trained. They could solve partial differential equations and program it, I thought. But they didn't know anything about the economy. They didn't know anything about how companies are formed, how venture capitals are. And a lot of them, their eyes were like saucers after a while. They're like, wait, this is how people get rich in our society. And then, so at the end, like all of them were saying like, yeah, I want to start a company now. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's kind of like practical education that plenty of like, you know, elite schools are not giving to their kids. It's more pickup coaching. Yeah, I, I didn't teach this game, but that, that could be like an extra credit assignment or something. I mean, honestly, at this point, like, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other, a whole other topic. But I think, yeah, like that would be, you know, instead of, instead of learning, you know, geometry, like learning basic social skills at this point or like dating or, or how to sort of exist in the social world. I think a lot of, a lot of young people would benefit from that too. Uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe, they, maybe they, we're, we're focusing too much on, on uh, academic credentials as, as Richard pointed out, which I, I actually, I actually do agree with, um, because like the people who who set education policy and the people who you know just people who are members of the chattering class who talk about these things they were good at school they were good at tests they went to college and therefore they think that you know this is the be all and end all and everyone should follow the same the same path um but i still think it's 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 good to have that information right like if you are do well on a standardized test just to like know that that you have that ability within you even if you don't go to college i think, I think there's just some value in that yeah absolutely but i i do think that like you know, we're 
intellectual. So I think we're all PhDs, right? And, and so we have a very special viewpoint. If you go into the business world, their kind of default assumption is that academia is kind of goofy, useless yeah. stuff, right? So they're like, well, I didn't learn anything in college. I had to learn how to sell, you know, vacuum cleaners door to door. That's was my real education, right? And that's, that's actually kind of the default assumption among a lot of business people. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. for them. For them, I mean, that's but they, but yeah, they still probably want someone with a bachelor's degree at least, right? So there is, you know, there is that sort of of education cartel. They've kind of been brainwashed a little bit, like, and also, like, Mm -hmm. in my lifetime, I saw the rise of the MBA. So when I was young, almost nobody got an MBA, and there were only a few MBA programs in the United States, like Harvard. And then that became like a kind of British professional credential if you wanted to get into upper management. But that that wasn't the case, you know, uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So um, so you could you could we could wind that back too and like disabuse people of the idea that I, I was saying this to the guys that I was teaching entrepreneurship to. I said, look, uh, you're not going to learn this in the MBA program because there's no professor over there that's actually raised a big venture around. They have no idea how to negotiate with a venture capitalist, right? They, they have no clue. Right. They're academics who write papers for other academics, even at a business school. And so, you know, I think it would be totally possible to wind back the clock to a more practical kind of business education. Hey, Rob, where are you and what are your life plans now? Because you're you're no longer. uh, Well, yeah, I'll give you I'll give you the yeah, the 20 second. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm still in Cambridge. I'm here on a what with a graduate visa. Um, which allows me to remain in the UK for up to, up to three years. I may not stay for the full three years, but I'm still based here. I'm in the States a lot though. I was just in the States, uh, for about a month, actually, um, did the, did the UATX forbidden courses program. I recorded some lectures in Miami for uh, Jordan Peterson's new online learning platform. Um, I was in LA. I've sort of been bouncing around, uh, back and forth. Uh, you know, a friend calls me, uh, I've never used this term on myself before, but uh, he calls me a digital nomad which is nice. pretty accurate. I mean, I'll be in New York next week uh, and then I'll be back in LA in September. So yeah, back and forth a lot, but um, mostly, mostly just sub stacking some public speaking stuff, uh, final, final touches on my book uh, and some other, other side projects. But uh, it's, it's nice to sort of be completely disentangled from uh, proper academia after finishing uh, at Cambridge. Do you, do you know where you think you'll be based like a year from now or any ideas? I have I have no, no idea. I, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend, she, you know, she sometimes, uh, wants to, she wants us to, so she likes her job here in Cambridge and that's why we're here. One reason why we're here, uh, she works here, but she has family in Malaysia and in Singapore. And I like Singapore a lot, actually. And so we've been playing around with this idea of relocating to Singapore as well, but we've been, we've been talking about that for like a year. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Uh, for all I know, we're going to be in Austin in, in a year. But Austin. the short answer is we don't know. I like I like Austin a lot. Um, I don't know, but I but I but I sometimes I miss California too. Uh, you know, I grew up there, and despite all the sort of you know political uh, missteps of that state, um, it's still it's still beautiful. So you know, we'll see. Yeah, it's still beautiful and has a great vibe. I mean, like you know, yeah, I put up with a lot of nasty politics in exchange for that. Absolutely. So. Cool. Well, Rob and Richard, it's been great. As always, uh, let's do it again before too long. And uh, wish you guys both the best. 